As business owners, entrepreneurs, family men, it's difficult for us to find the time to put together projects like these. Even though it's something we really want to do, unfortunately, taking care of the things we have to take care of comes first. However, because of viewer support from people like you, we're able to continue doing this. Please consider joining our Patreon and supporting the Burn and Return podcast. covering news from the agricultural and turf grass industries. With the DJ Scratch, that means it is time for another episode of Burn and Return. How the hell is everybody doing? My name is Matt. Sometimes I go by the Grass Factor. Martin, and alongside me, we have Ray Ito and Ryan DeMay. Gentlemen, how the hell are y'all doing tonight? Well, Matt, you know, I, I was so out of breath from uh, meeting my new friend there. I passed out a couple of times, but uh, I, I'm, kind of, I'm feeling I might get lucky tonight. You know, who, who knows, right? I'm... I'm glad you're here and aware and cognizant and uh and no longer no longer unconscious. Ray, uh how are how are you? Well, this is my I guess first uh, official day being 50. Oh, Ray. congratulations. I don't know if it was your birthday. The big yeah, five zero shit. shit. Me neither, man. Fucking hey. Happy birthday. Yeah. Ray coming in young. No, no, that that was that was yesterday actually okay well okay. Th- listen uh we have to send a note to all of our female viewers that uh ray has successfully graduated to the uh the gilf uh category he's now a, a, a grandpa <laughs> so oh, you know. no grandchildren yeah, to my to, name that i know well, of, okay? but i'm saying just, in, in just <laughs> but then general I, terms I know, you I, know no i'm i'm in the age of uh you know of that category however no worries there uh i'm not going to be one of those where it's like god dang it alma where's my geritol you know none of that shit for me honestly none of that <laughs> no geritol you're damn right ray you're damn right hell, hey, hell we have I'm glad, I'm glad for you we keep ounces of tough act and tenactin laying around, but not a damn bit, not a drop of Geritol, because we know, we know that when things get down and dirty, we can lean in to tough act and tenactin. Speaking of getting <laughs> down and dirty, gentlemen, let's check out this week's headlines. Uh, we have, uh, we have some good news coming out of, uh, the Kentucky bluegrass production world. And, uh, the good news is, is that, well, they're not going to be going out of business anytime soon, even though we've had some tough (laughs) years, uh, because they found some additional things that they could do with, well, their residues to be able to, you know, support the bottom line there. Uh, a future for regional Kentucky bluegrass seed production looks green again, despite changes 25 years ago that once made it look bleak. 
That's because of gains in developing new bluegrass seed varieties that can produce yields up to four or five years, um, uh, along with market and food production for livestock and overseas demand for grass straw, said Paul Dashiell, co-owner of Tacoa Washington-based Seeds, Inc. Today, the Washington Turfgrass Seed Commission estimates that roughly 90 farms grow Kentucky bluegrass seed in the state. More, uh, most are irrigated farms in central Washington, and others are dry land farms in eastern Washington. Uh, the industry has adapted since field burning ceased in the 90s when Washington around 2007, except Idaho. Uh, it, it's, my goodness, what am I reading? 90s in Washington around 2007 in Idaho, except on tribal lands and under carefully monitored conditions, Deshiel said. Somehow, physiologically, bluegrass knows to put up a big seed crop the next year if it's been burnt. Why? We don't know. Since we quit burning, we've developed some uh, varieties, and it's taken all these years to do that. We found some varieties that will produce. It's a shorter rotation, but up to three to five years without burning. Turning 72 this year, starting in the industry at 11, Dashiell seen it, uh, seen it all. Uh, my dad was among the ones who started the grass seed industry down here in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, and it's continued on. And what they have figured out that they're going to start doing here is uh, figuring out what to do with all the straw that's left over. And it turns out they found a little bit of a market selling that into uh, into livestock. And then, of course, being able to sell it overseas. So uh, the straw, we've had to develop ways to get rid of that. And we've been fairly successful at it at least a few years. The seeds we sell all over the U.S., Canada, and all over Europe. So, you know, again, this is one of those situations where uh, the grass seed industry has been in a tough spot. We'll say that, especially with the drought and everything that's been going on in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And they've had to adapt to figure out ways to remain profitable with all of that going on, especially, you know, with restrictions like you, know, you can't burn. And so the, uh, the the rotation of seed production is a little bit different than the way it used to be, uh, you know, just you know 20 years ago. And so in order to be able to remain profitable, what did they figure out to do? Well, you know, turn their waste stream into something that pads that bottom line. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about this. Demay, I'm sure you do. Uh, is there any other additional insight you can add to this? Or uh, are we kind of, we're just kind of uh, flying off the cuff here with it that, you know, what we see is what we get and, you know, good for these guys. Uh, for the most part, what you see, what you get. I mean, I think the, um, the thing that happened with bluegrass probably, oh gosh, you know, five, six, seven years ago, maybe even longer, is, uh, you know, a lot of farmers out there just stopped growing it because the stuff that was coming out was, you know, it, they would either not want to pull away from old reliable, which were, you know, uh, less than stellar varieties, right, at this point uh, in the marketplace, but they were prolific seed producers, right? They yielded very, very well. And uh, a lot of the newer ones that have come on the market here as of late, particularly in that five, like five to seven year range, have been, uh, you know, the super elites. A lot of what we see, we don't get a ton of seed from them. And so uh, it's good that there's a shift in the marketplace that people are starting to realize that there is benefit to growing these grasses. Um, you know, it, it, the seed production industry out there is, is really, really interesting, particularly in Oregon. And this is talking about uh, eastern Washington, Spokane area. But, you know, all over there, it's a lot of these farms are not just growing uh, turf grass seed. They're growing a variety of forages, other things. Uh, many of them have multiple crops on the same site. So um, I think at, at any point when you get into the pinch that they got into weather-wise the last few years, and certainly they're taking it on the chin, uh, they're trying to find better ways to do this. And a, a lot of what you've seen in terms of the, the technology for farming out there uh, has improved mightily in the last, oh, again, five to 10 years. And so it's good to see them taking some more steps and being public about it. A lot of times you don't hear whole lot about the seed production issue i know uh 
Ryan Nord did a good video on it last year that was pretty insightful. And so uh, yes, I think it's just much. another thing. Yes. It's just yes. understanding where all this stuff comes from and people that complain and say, man, I can't believe that seed's 5 $6, but whatever. You got to see what it takes to get it to market. It's nuts. And it's such a small crop, right? Such a small, small part of what gets produced, you know, within that state, let alone the country, that just quit your bitching, you know? Like, you can send a letter across the country for 50 cents. The grass seed for, you know, three, four bucks a pound ain't that bad. Right, Ray? It's better than three or four dollar a square foot sod, right? It's got to be better. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I Maybe mean, you should just start seeding ryegrass out there. And be the Ryan North one. Just do it and see what happens. You know Just what? Just keep pounding ryegrass. Five pounds a week every it. week for the whole season. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I would then use up all the ryegrass because, like in my area, ryegrass literally lives about a month. And then the nighttime temperatures and the humidity take it out. Oh, yeah. Just melts yeah, away. Mean, yeah, it just melts mm. away. I mean, because... Ryegrass is frequently a nurse crop seed when somebody is seeding Bermuda for erosion control purposes. So they use mm -hmm. like uh, a 50-50 mix of rye and unimproved Bermuda. And the ryegrass comes up first, then the Bermuda comes after, and then in about a month's time, no herbicides involved, the ryegrass is bye-bye. Done. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I get it, and it's, uh, you know, that, that, that ryegrass at that point's got to be uh, juicier than some underfucked wives in Florida watching our shirtless episode that's coming up, so, yeah. We're having a shirtless episode? We didn't tell you, Ray, but... <laughs> yes, it's coming, Ray. It's coming. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll DM you on the, on, the, uh, on the private lines of communication, and we'll, we'll, get, this, we'll get this sorted out. It's going to be a good time. Uh, speaking yeah. of good time, uh, in the midst of everything that's going on geopolitically, especially between Taiwan and China and the United States right now, uh, Taiwan had the balls to do what Sri Lanka did not do. Uh, if anybody remembers, China sent a bunch of Irwinian tainted organic fertilizers to Sri Lanka, <laughs> and Sri Lanka attempted to deny it. And China shook a big stick at them. And so they went ahead and coughed up, oh, I don't know, $20, $30 million to go ahead and pay for it. Um, now, what we see here is on the flip side, uh, China has sent a, uh, a significant amount, 16 shipments of produce weighing nearly 50,000 kgs. Uh, and it contained uh, fresh pumpkins, frozen broccoli, uh, black soybeans, and cordyceps, uh, which is interesting, mushrooms. And uh, in addition to the uh, to the produce there, we also had uh, bowls and bowl covers uh, that came in at 275 kilograms, 134 kilograms, and uh, they were confiscated for failing safety tests. And then for the, the vegetables contained excessive levels of pesticide residue. Yikes. Uh, well, and it turns out it was just not from China that these were uh, these were rejected and sent off for destruction. That would also be coming from Chile, uh, Vietnam, and uh, and from Belgium as well. Uh, excessive levels of uh, pesticide residues. Now, I do not know how Taiwan looks at pesticide residues internally. Um, I, so, do they have? You know what would be considered uh, acceptable uh, levels they of do. exposure that we see out of the EPA, or they do, do they have their own enhanced Titan one? They they do what? 
what they do is they have acceptable levels of residue because I was watching something on YouTube. Is it, uh, several, is it, is it comparable people, to what like, see from the EPA or are they, yes, are it they is. exceptionally yeah. extringent? Okay. Okay. No, they, they're, they're, they're comparable. And I think what it is is that they look at it in terms of is there anything that's going to be potentially unhealthy or harmful and you know this gives me pause too because i've also seen reports of how things are done in other parts of the world where they're literally spraying up to the day of harvest and for me that Jeez that's kind of no that's kind of surprising <laughs> because hey I mean, I, I know for myself, uh, growing up with citrus and avocado, for example, stop applying 14 days before harvest. That's it. You know, you know it makes me wonder, is the hope there that, you know, during transport that they're going to suffer enough degradation of the pesticide molecule that it's not going to be there by the time it lands? I mean, is it, uh, I'm just I'm, I'm going for some sort of logical at all. No, no, it's, it's more. It's more to do with more is good. Oh, oh yes, they have like this expectation that the fruits and vegetables look absolutely, totally perfect. Where I know in my vegetable eating days, I often said I will not get weirded out or unintended bugged out if something should uh, float up in the sink when I'm washing vegetables because then I know that uh, my cabbage or my broccoli is not treated with the equivalent of Chernobyl. You know, I, I look at it that way. I mean, I have a certain, I have a certain tolerance, you know, where I'm not weirded out. Whereas for other people, Especially in, I know, the Asian countries, they actually have this expectation of absolute, total perfection. Not a mark, not a blemish, nothing, right? But Yeah, I, I've seen that it, in Japan. My wife says, you know, that that's in, in, incredibly important like that. that all the f vegetables and fruits look just immaculate. However, how do you get there? And if that means that uh, the grower is hosing down the vegetables with, say, chlorpyrifos the day of harvest, then what, Matt? <laughs> uh, your potential for pesticide residues making it upon delivery are going to be incredibly <laughs> high. And, uh, yes. and I guess, I guess that's why people made all those millions of dollars with, uh, water in a bottle that they called, uh, a produce spray. Um, it'd be, you know, it'd be like water and like a, a drip soap or something, you know, it's unbelievable. I still can't get over that as a, uh, as a, as a viable business product. Was there anything in those vegetable sprays that made it just an amazing product to, to su suffice no. the number of sales that they made? I know it was, no, it was crazy. No, no because no. you know, Matt. In order for something to degrade pesticide residues, that particular wash or product would have to 
A, be extremely alkaline, B, be a strong oxidizing agent, and C, also have high solvent properties for oil-soluble material. So the whole point is, is that by, by, you get, by the time you get to that point, uh, I believe the vegetable wash spray may even be worse than what you're trying to wash off with it. <laughs> it's uh, 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 uh. <laughs> uh, The good news is, is that I, I wonder how often this happens in the United States and we never hear about it. Uh, that's actually something I'm kind of interested in looking at is the, the number of quite, shows quite a bit, that are rejected quite a, per year. Often, yeah. Matt, quite, rather often. I mean, the, the EPA, specifically the FDA and USDA, grab things that are being imported, you know, into the United States and they and they stop stop sale on them because they happen to have excessive residues and it happens extremely quietly. Extremely oh, I'm sure. quietly. I'm sure. Yeah, it, it just happens. I mean, they pull a sample from the crate of produce coming in from say South America or, or Asia and it just gets halted stopped and, and if, if anybody ever wonders you know again there's a reason why we have strawberries all year long there's a reason why we have avocados all year long there's a reason why we have tomatoes all year long look at look at where your vegetables are coming from they're being grown all over the world that's not and i'm not saying that to say don't eat these things i'm saying enjoy no. it uh we have we have a very complex network to be able to get food here the types of food that we want to eat whenever we want to eat it and, uh, and, you know, we do have regulatory bodies in place that make sure that what we're consuming is going to be as safe as possible. And, and what we're seeing there in, in Taiwan in this particular instance is their regulatory agency making sure what they're consuming is as safe as possible. It's just the timing of it in the midst of everything else makes it newsworthy, in my opinion, because already things are weird. And this could be used politically to say that Taiwan is just rejecting things to reject things. And China could be saying that Taiwan is, you know, be stepping out of line and you know needs needs a spanking or whatever the case may be so that's why i think it's at least important to bring it to your attention uh also important to bring to your attention would be uh we have a a study here the low temperature mineralization of pfa so there was an article that i i uh, came across that said uh pfas have met their match in a low temperature easy to solve type of process here and, uh, and and we have been talking about PFAs in biosolids for quite a while now. And uh, and so what we have here is another option we talked about last week uh, through pyrolysis in the treating of sewage sludge with uh, EDTA and citric acid uh, and temperature somewhere around 900 degrees Celsius. We could bla- uh, uh, break uh, some of those fluoride bonds. And uh, here we seem to have found an even easier method. And I'll read this and then explain, well, you know, it may not exactly be apples to apples, but at least it's something trending in the right direction. Uh, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, have been referred to as forever chemicals because they're resistance to most biological and chemical degradation me- uh, mechanisms. Most current methods use very harsh conditions to decompose these compounds. Trang et al. found that there is a potential weak spot in carboxylic acid-containing PFAs. Decarboxylation in polar non-product solvents yield a car, uh, a carbanion that rapidly decomposes. 
see the perspective by Judan and Lundgren. Uh, the authors use computational work and experiments to show that this process involves fluoride elimination, hydroxide addition, and carbon-carbon bond scission. Uh, the initial uh, decarboxylation step is resting, and the sub subsequent defluorination and chain shortening steps occur through a series of low-barrier steps. The procedure can accommodate uh, plurifluoro ether carboxylic acids, although sulfonic acids are not currently compatible. So, in effect, and from my interpretation of this, of what I've read, is that uh, some of the PFAs, PFA is kind of an umbrella statement. You have all these uh, uh, more specific compounds under the PFA umbrella. Uh, some of them are sensitive to uh, the exposure of, in this particular instance, they're using sodium hydroxide. Sodium hydroxide is a very caustic, very high pH material um, that is used as a precursor for all kinds of different things, but mainly it is used to bring up the pH of some sort of solution, right? It's probably the most common, uh, uh, commonly used buffer in all of chemistry. Uh, and if it's not sodium hydroxide, typically it's, it's potassium hydroxide. Sodium hydroxide is a bit more caustic. Um, and so anyway... The point being is that they could uh, use sodium hydroxide in a bit of heat and begin to set off a series of, uh, of uh, co-reactions that would break apart PFAS. Uh, what's interesting about that is that up to this point, it's been a very complex way to get rid of them, if you're even able to get rid of them, and this provides a much easier means to do so. Now, here are a couple of caveats, and uh, I've got to go through this to develop a bit of a, uh, a, a better understanding is, you know, what molar ratio, so what concentration, what amount of um, uh, sodium hydroxide is required to treat a given volume or a given mass of PFOS contaminated material. You know, so if you need 100 pounds of sodium hydroxide to treat one pound of uh, 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 PFOS contaminated uh, uh, biomass, then you're probably running into a bigger threat uh, environmentally than you would be if you were, uh, you know, in adopting one of the other methods. Uh, the other thing, too, is that so far this has mainly been done through computational work. And so, you know, uh, putting it... it Employing this at scale is going to be a completely different, um, a, a completely different experience altogether. And and so, but the good news here is that we have a solid starting point. That in the event, uh, with with a little bit more research, we can identify, you know, what molar ratios are necessary, um, and uh, and and get that piece of it figured out and, and be able to implement it at scale. Well, now all of a sudden we have a very, you know, seemingly cost-effective way and a very repeatable way to eliminate PFAS. So I feel like, and, you know, the conclusion here of this, you know, says that, you know, there's there's still a way to go, but it does look like they've at least un, uh, unpacked a way to begin attacking this. Um, now the caveat is that there's still, you know, quite a way to go. Um, and, and there's a, there's a competing interest here. Northwest university has filed a provisional patent that describes a method to grade PFCAs on behalf of inventors, BBT and WRD. But I don't think that matters in this particular instance. Uh, I think, it, you know, they're going for their patent because they developed the process. And, uh, and if it does work in the way that they're citing here, then they 100% deserve all the fricking credit that they're going to get because, uh, this is uh, this has a very very high potential of solving a shit ton of problems that we may we may encounter. Um, now the other piece of this is that if you were to begin treating sewage sludge with sodium hydroxide, 
you're going to get a completely different compound out of sewer sludge. Biosolids would no longer exist. Um, what you would get would be some sort of quasi-dirty uh, mm-hmm. soap of sorts, right? Um, so the, the, the nitrogen value, you'd probably lose a bit of your uh, phosphorus value as well. So you're going to be looking at a completely different product and biosolids, as we know, would be going bye-bye. I don't know what else to say about it. You you cut out for just a second there, Demay. Demay is going to watch. His internet's going to ca- catch up, and he's going to go right in. Uh, Darcy, yes, this is one you sent in. Uh, some, someone else sent it to me, too. Uh, however, this is the study that showed the actual experiment uh, that was done through computational efforts to be able to, uh, to, be able to do this. Um, ag- again, whenever you're taking an organic matter and reacting or hydrolyzing it with a hydroxide, uh, you're going to get some sort of saponification reaction that occurs. So um, the the simplest thing to visualize a saponification reaction would be to take sodium hydroxide and react it with a fat, an oil, a lipid. Uh, That is the building block of soap. Sodium hydroxide in and of itself is not soap. It is a catalyst of a reaction that creates soap, right? Um, so I don't want this to think that it's simple as, ah, you wash it with soap and a little hot water and it's going to go away. That's not what we're talking about at all here. Uh, it's way, 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 way more complex than that. Uh, we're, we're having to really dial in appropriate molar ratios, uh, in order to get a complete reaction and then a certain amount of heat for a certain amount of time. And we're talking like 80 to 120 degrees Celsius, uh, for upwards of 24 hours in order for these PFOAs to begin to fully uh, degrade. And uh, that's where you're getting your fluoride ions being released. And then a lot of those secondary reactions are beginning to take place at that point where uh, you have a, a final product that's able to be handled. Um, the other thing they're using as well, too, is going to be DMSO. Um, and for those of you that have never heard of DMSO, DMSO, I don't know how else to describe it other than it is a solvent that has extremely high, uh, uh, penetrative, uh, uh, characteristics. And what I mean by that is, um, uh, for instance, you can take DMSO and mix it with something and, uh, and it'll move right through your skin into your bloodstream. Uh, so absolutely, uh, you know, again, you know, DMSO sodium hydroxide mixed with the, uh, with the PFAS and say, we're doing this at scale. We're treating all our wastewater, uh, sewage sludge and with the intent of getting biosolids on the back end. No, biosolids are not going to no. exist anymore. Uh, you're going to get a completely different schmoo as a byproduct of that. And likely one that is not going to be very conducive towards uh, uh, a growing healthy grass or plants or whatever the case may be. Okay, and one more thing about DMSO. DMSO is incredibly difficult to separate from something that has been treated with it because DMSO has a rather high boiling point, and DMSO is also extremely hydrophilic. So it is not something that you can say treat a solid material with DMSO and then expect to be able to easily distill the DMSO off of it. Just a little bit of organic chemistry 101 there. I mean, it's most organic chemists uh, do not use 
DMSO, if they need to then remove that DMSO from their reaction mixture, because it is a damned hard thing to get rid of. And I don't know, this is not my area of expertise, but uh, Ray, are we safe to be applying tons and tons of DMSO uh, to croplands? It is relatively harmless. However, the question that I have regarding the DMSO is, of course, what you just alluded to in that DMSO has the remarkable ability to make anything chemical that is dissolved in it easily pass through skin. Okay? Think about that real hard now, Matt, because... Uh, and in terms of a solvent, in terms of a solvent, uh, DMSO is a rather strong solvent, so there's there's quite a few things that are soluble in DMSO. Yeah, very, very, uh, very much so. I mean, uh, I know... Uh, Pharmaceutically, like hormones. <laughs> well, hormones, uh, I'm thinking also like pain relievers, uh, antibiotic. Sure. I mean, because uh, the, uh, but the only other effect that I can think of is supposedly, although this has been not borne out to be true, but at one time it was suspected that DMSO upon chronic exposure, caused eye damage in the form mm. of cataracts. Mm. However, the opposite is true in that DMSO can be used to deal with certain eye issues like uh, macular degeneration and, uh, and cataracts. So go figure. But then the actual danger that I think is how that is something where if it is combined with another chemical substance, it is highly likely that that chemical substance goes through your skin almost as if it's been injected. In what, and another thing that I'm thinking of here is that even from a biosolid perspective, right? So say you're treating sewage sludge with um, uh, DMSO and, uh, and sodium hydroxide, you're getting a new type of schmoo as a as a as a back end product of that, right? And uh, with it being a hydrophilic compound, I think in and it's uh, high boiling point. It would be very difficult to granulate at that point too. Um, you're going to yeah. have these surfactant characteristics, uh, and you know, you, you, when it comes to agglomeration, you're 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 limited at the amount of uh, of surfactant. Um, by mass that begins to either aid in granulation or inhibit granulation. And so there's going to be a concentration there that has to be balanced. And then also you have to be very careful with hydrophilic materials because, um, you know, long-term storage, uh, uh, you know, you can run into problems there too because it starts, you know, drawing on atmospheric moisture. Or if you can't dry it off enough to bring down moisture content, say sub 5%, uh, then it may just, you know, you may be cooking it at, uh, you know, we'll say like, you know, 750 degrees Fahrenheit 
you're only able to drive you drive the moisture from 30% down to 12% and uh and even then you're not creating a hard enough granule for uh uh for spreadability or flowability purposes right you're going to get a lot of bridging and rat holing that yeah. occurs through your spreader so it's again i think this is a great first step and this is going to be something that can at least help us deal with this um but on the flip side, I want everybody to go ahead and get in the back of their mind that in the event this becomes the route of administration for dealing with this, um, then we're, you know, say bye to biosolids. And, you know, you may want to get out ahead of this by looking for an alternative to biosolids uh, just because you're going to be shit up a creek if that's something you rely heavy on. And then all of a sudden it's gone. Um, so I don't know, but we're not there yet. There's still a lot that has to be vetted here. Uh, and, and then again, you know, put out at scale. What were you going to say? Does that mean that we're going to be shit out of biosolids? That means we are going to be shit Maybe. Maybe, Brian. Maybe. I stepped into that, didn't I? <laughs> I deserve that. You, yes, you stepped into the shit. All right. Uh, all right. So our next one here, 92 lawmakers asked the EPA to reconsider decreased herbicide allowances. Uh, so the uh, a group of 92 House lawmakers, and these are uh, 91 of the 92, I believe, are going to be Republican lawmakers here, uh, are uh, worried about atrazine and the new uh, rates that they are talking about as as you know what's allowed to be uh, uh, to be seen in the environment, right? And we talked about last week how we saw it move from 15 parts per billion to a proposed 3.4 parts per billion, which would effectively ban uh, the overwhelming majority of the use of atrazine as we know it. So that two pound per acre rate uh, is uh, is pretty much going to go bye bye. Um, and so and here, here's the thing, you know, why I bring this up is that, you know, they're asking, they're proposing that a scientific board be put together to take a look at this from all ways uh, that they possibly can. And uh, and so they're proposing this because they're, you know, the the, uh, the the political answer here is that we're alarmed by the agency's departure from sound science by changing the CELOC uh, and also with mitigation measure, uh, measures in the proposed revisions. Um, I do think that if they are going to vet this, uh, let the uh, let the let the trial work um, speak for itself, right? So if they could put together a uh, a neutral team of scientists to investigate Good this, co-sign. Uh, I know, and that's that's the part that has me scratching my head is who in the hell are you going to get to to do this, to perform this work, uh, and and develop some sort of 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 neutral approach to it. But I, you know, I, I, surely, surely, there's an agricultural school out there that would be that would be able to take this on. Um, but I don't know. I mean, is is it, is it going to be members of government that are that are hand selecting the scientific council that's going to be overseeing this? I don't trust that. <laughs> and and if it if the... it if it is from a school, what what school is it going to be from? Is it going to be from from Berkeley or Stanford or Yale or Harvard or is it? Is it going to be from uh, from Cambridge, University of Georgia, Penn State? Is it going to be UGA? I, I, you know, I don't know. And who's to say that they're not all going to be influenced in some way, form, or fashion? Uh, but I, I, I do think at least this you know, scientific advisory panel to overlook this, overlook uh, the the existing body of evidence, and uh, and hopefully undergo, which they're not proposing to undergo new uh, uh, scientific testing. I, I wish they would. I wish they would. If they're going to allocate budget for that. 
uh, if they're going to allocate budget for a scientific advisory panel, they should allocate budget for uh, for continued research into this. And um, and and you know, let them speak for themselves. You know, I, it's I kind think of a so it's kind of a the- non-libertarian view for me, which is rare. But you know, there it is. Okay. Here's here's my take on this: is that I really want to have an independent, non-biased body come in and determine whether 34 parts per billion or million of atrazine in water is even harmful. Because you see, uh, this sounds to me like a lot of the regulations that I live with in Hawaii, in that their premise is, if it's there, uh, it is already a problem. You know, that's their position is that if it's there, that is not acceptable. Even though there is no evidence that something may or may not be toxic. Because, for example, that's the position that Hawaii took on chlorinchronilipril, by the way. Because it has the potential to be there, we will not have it. I mean, so this is again looking at are we actually mitigating risk or are we solving a problem that does not need to be solved? Because because atrazine has literally had decades of safe and effective use. I mean, if I remember rightly, atrazine has been in use in the United States and in many parts of the world since the uh, 1960s. So, so, you know, the, the other part here, though, is that, gentlemen, this is only the first one they're taking a look at, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, the whole re-reg- the re-registration process, right? So, here's where it gets tough, right? Um, the, let's just say, chlorothalonil comes up next, right? The mm-hmm. behavior mm-hmm. and fate in the environment of that molecule might be radically different than what atrazine is. I would, I would actually stand to bet that it is radically different. Mm-hmm. So, could you have the same set of people looking at this stuff because at some point, right, you got to see the forest through the trees and you're going to have people who are either um, generalists, right, that are looking at this and, and trying to make a call or you got to bring in an entirely new set of people for each individual um, AI, right, and, and try to, you know, wade through all this information, right, and try to figure out what's what and make sense of it. Not I did me. not even think of that, and you're you're fucking dead nuts, right? You're a hundred percent correct. It people because if there's anything we learned from uh, 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 pissing off PhDs, it's asking them to speak on things <laughs> that they haven't studied with a high level of specificity, Easy. right? Easy. I'm, I'm just saying is that that y- you are one hundred thousand percent correct. Not even a real percent, but you, you, I mean that's legitimately i i never took that into consideration and 100 that has to be the case well and and i'm just saying like to to reinvent the wheel each time how do you set that up who sets that up like you know 
it's not the game that gets played. It's who makes the rules and, and picks the teams, right? You know, that's mm-hmm. that's sort of what we're talking that, about here. That, that's um, where it's become. That is mm-hmm. where it's become because the change became when we have two warring factions. The industry versus the anti-pesticide, anti-technology NGOs. I mean, we got two warring factions, and my question, or what has become the emergent question, am I right, Matt, is whose data do we even trust anymore because of all of the confirmation bias present where with the uh, anti-pesticide anti-agriculture NGOs, oh yes, they can go and find all manner of uh, incriminating results on, say, atrazine, where they can come up with, say, atrazine has sexual side effects in frogs. (laughs) I mean, that, you know, to to give an example, right? (laughs) Yeah, and and then you have to take into consideration, like for instance, we see with glyphosate, where all of a sudden it's the the argument starts as you know glyphosate's going to kill you, and then the argument becomes, well, it's the tallow based uh, uh, surfactant, NCAN surfactant, that's actually going to kill you, and so it's when you can't when you can't pin it on one something else that's going to fit that fit that storyline that you can continue to pass the buck onto to at least point and at the chemical industry and say you're all bad, you're all fucked up, you're all Mm-hmm. in it to kill us kind of sort of thing. And I don't think we're at a point where that is going to stop anytime soon. And, you know, my hope, my hope is that if, if government wants to uh, uh, show that it can be competent, that's a, that's a big ask oh. to show a uh, competent <laughs> would be to put forth a scientific advisory panel that is neutral, that is able to produce us some, trustworthy results that have a very uh, uh, logical and balanced look at what's safe and what's not. We deserve that data, I feel like, in a very transparent way. I think so, too. And you see, it all comes down to where what I've seen happen in the last 10 years or 15 years is all the scientists are chosen based on their political beliefs, not due to their competence. And pesticides are not the only issue. Where that has happened, and where that has happened literally to the detriment of our world. (laughs) Well, and here's, here's my big picture take is for all the fighting and all the money and effort and time and everything that goes into, you know, that Ray, to your point, the two factions, right. And then pitting themselves against each other and, you know, influencing mm-hmm. people in the middle who are the decision makers. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what would happen if to use, uh, Matt's, uh, philosophy and theory of mind in, in the, uh, libertarian free market type of thing is let's just set some parameters, you know, uh, of, Hey, you know, this level of atrazine is acceptable. You know, three point four, it's back up to the fifteen, whatever it is, right? And then on the you know, the organic 
side, right? Let's set some parameters of what can and can't be done. And let them go out and do that. Like, I just wonder if they spent their time, money, and effort for a period of five years, 10 years, whatever, and just focused on that instead of on each other. What type of advances in data, in um, <laughs> correlation of data to results that we might have? And, and maybe the answer is that it's a little column A, a little column B, right? Or that certain areas of the country are more uh, predisposed to being productive organic farming communities rather than you know, a conventional approach or vice versa. I'm just saying like, it's all the nuance, right? And instead we're just going literally like foxhole to foxhole and trying to, you know, just fucking exterminate whoever's right there in your way and keep going. And that's just, it's a shitty way, you know, the whole trench warfare thing of being in a defensive posture at all times doesn't win anything, right? And the problem is, is that nobody (laughs) really has the firepower, i.e. the data to back up everything that they say. So listen, let the market solve it. Don't, I'm not saying, hey, just let it go for a free-for-all and you spray whatever you want and you do whatever you want, call whatever organic you want. Set some parameters, not every single rule in the book, and let's find out what the fuck works. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and it, I, it, I'd love it because this actually ties into our next article here uh, where we move from December to nutrient management, and the USDA announces new opportunities to improve nutrient management. The United States Department of Agriculture welcomed the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which will deliver $19.5 billion in new conservation funding to support climate-smart agriculture. $19.5 billion. And specifically, what this is going to be targeting is Streamlined Nutrient Management Initiative, a nutrient management economic benefits outreach campaign, and an expanded nutrient management support through technical service providers, streamlining, and pilots. Uh, $8.45 billion for EQ, the Environmental Quality Incentives Program, uh, $5 billion for the Regional Conser- uh, Conservation Partnership Program, $3.25 billion for the Con- Conservation Stewardship Program, and $1.4 billion for the Agricultural Con- Conservation Easement Program. And why I think this is substantial, right? Because this is a metric shit ton of money, a shit ton of money. Even in agricultural spending, $20 billion is huge, huge. And considering how much of this is going towards outreach and education is fascinating to me because that means if done correctly, If the dollars are spent wisely, this should touch every fucking human being in America seven times at least with a $19.5 billion marketing plan in effect, right? Now, of course, there's going to be some, uh, some incentive programs, right? And I, what the details of that are is not stated in here. And I would love to see what that is, right? Or is this going to be some sort of subsidized precision agricultural equipment, you know, where you get tax breaks if you're upgrading to a certain level of sophistication? Uh, is it going to be, uh, you know, using enhanced efficiency type products? Are you going to get buyback programs on that? I know Canada is in the process of doing, of, of offering some sort of uh, uh, incentive program with that. I don't know exactly what the details of this look like yet. I don't know if they've been made public yet. Um, but what we do know is that it only makes up uh, about $8.45 billion of the budget. And so we have you know, roughly another uh, uh, 
uh, 11 and a half or 11 billion dollars that's going to be towards these uh, these partnership and stewardship programs. And, and a lot of them are going to be about about reaching out uh, and educational opportunities. So, guys, over the course of the next four years, is there anyone is there anyone in North America as a whole shit on the globe on the globe? That will not be impacted by this. Oh, here's the other thing, too. The bill invests $40 billion into existing USDA programs uh, promoting climate smart agriculture, rural energy efficiency, reliability, forest conservation, and more. $20 billion of that investment will support conservation programs that are oversubscribed, meaning that more producers will have access to conservation assistance that will support healthier land water, uh, improve the resilience of their operations, support their bottom line, and combat climate change. This this is crazy, like big. It was a big effort, right? And uh, but here's the thing: when government starts spending money, how well does it get spent? How how efficient is that money placed in programs that are going to be making the right amounts of contribution and differences? Or is this going to be one of those situations? And I hate to even use this as an example. And obviously, it's not an apples to apples comparison. Uh, but what was our favorite bug in a jug that gave away fucking refrigerators if you signed up with their uh, with their liquid uh, Hoganics? Is this going to be a Hoganics type spending program where you get a refrigerator, you get a refrigerator, you get a pat on the back, and you get oh. a new hundred thousand dollar radar system? Well, I, I don't you know. know. What? I don't know. Go ahead, Ray. Go ahead. You know, my concern though is. Is this money going to be actually used to shut things down? I mean, is this going to be used to say, okay, you grower, uh, we will buy you out to stop you from farming? Because I have to be extremely careful when somebody says the word conservation. I got to be ultra careful. Because conservation usually means giving something up. You're, you're not getting, you're not receiving, you are giving up. Okay? I have to be super careful about that because to date, the conservation programs that I have seen have been exactly that, where productive area gets taken out by uh and the leverage to have that area taken out is either an incentive or a fine or some form of onerous regulation you know just saying and beware because, and I, because when i i know when i heard that we're seeing it globally right now right you know yes, we're, we're yes. seeing it we're seeing it in the eu we're seeing it in canada you know does this mm-hmm. is this the groundwork for us to see it here and you know like one of the things they state here in the nutrient management economic benefits outreach campaign is the potential net savings to farmers who adopt the nutrient management plan is estimated to be an average of 30 dollars per acre for cropland it is estimated that there are 89 million acres of cropland 28 percent of total u.s uh, cropland currently exceeding the nitrogen loss threshold. And if all those acres implemented a nutrient management plan, the average net savings would be $2.6 billion. It's one of those things, right? That if, if they, if they did this and, uh, according to their data that they were able to, uh, to parse together, 
They said, well, we're going to save $2.6 billion. We got 89 million that is exceed 89 million acres that are exceeding nitrogen loss threshold. Okay. We implement all this and we're not able to capture that. Uh, it turns out the nutrient management plans that, uh, that we have out there were just not significant enough in order to correct that 28% of total U.S. cropland and say maybe it only, only affected 28% to 28%, right? And, uh, and so now uh, we still have, you know, freaking uh, 20% of our total U.S. cropland that's exceeding nitrogen loss threshold and, uh, and none of the nutrient management plans are working. So what do we do? Shut them down? And, it's, nope. and I'm not so, saying we're going to end up there. I'm not going to say we're we're end up there. We don't know yet. But again, you know, you could see where this could, the potential cool. could go the wrong way, right? Yeah, because this is a, not only is this a mandate, but what happens when some kind of a government mandate has the full backing of government money behind it what happens to that mandate well you know it's a bit like the cdc where everything gets loosened up in the long run uh demay what were you going to say about this before i get us banned <laughs> off of youtube forever um well, before uh, me, i get us me, banned <laughs> give me give me a voice of, of reason here I'm, i try i've tried to, I'm gonna, to play both sides if, here if we're gonna do that i'm just gonna take my shirt off and we'll go out and blaze <laughs> and hey, <laughs> an exceedingly large amount don't of make me don't yeah. make me do it. I'm like the third guy from the le- from the left side of that evolution chart, you know. Somewhere between <laughs> Homo sapien and ape. Anyway, um, if you if you look, it's pretty interesting on this program. Like uh, this in the fiscal year 2022, they were scheduled to have 1.469 billion, 1 billion 469 million dollars available for this program. So on the conservation side, in particular. So that's up to three and a half. So literally doubled the money available in this yeah. program. And so I, you know, are you are you buying people's compliance, right? I understand why they're trying to do it and how they're trying to incentivize this and everything like that. But the question I always have with this, Ray, is a, a couple of things. First off, is do they have the staff in the in the systems in place to actually implement this, right? On the USDA they side, don't, like, if, if you're do going to double the amount of applications, that's a good point. you have to pull in and rank and figure out, hey, what's what? Well, and that's when all this money starts turning up doing dumb shit and nobody checks it and everything like that, right? So, Or the, here's, the, here's the alternate uh, reality is a lot of this money get diverted to build the rank of the environmental compliant police. No, I don't know that there's, I don't know if there's anything in there. I, I, I mean, I have to look deeper into the bill to see how that works and how they audit these things. Right. Cause it's not like they're doing every single one. They're just auditing. They're picking out random ones or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, <sighs> cause you know, there's a lot in the, in the conservation thing, you know, they talk about, um, you know, uh, you know, increasing, um, you know, gains from cattle per acre, right? So at grazing, you know, you can do rotational grazing things, um, improving soil health, what that means and how you quantify that goal of whether it's been met or not. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Adding that's pollinate, that's a sketchy pollinator word. Yeah. areas. Yeah. So yeah. Like, like I said, I, I, I would love to learn more about it. And then I'm, I'm understanding here that there's probably going to be a lot of people because a lot of these applications don't get funded. 
Um, there's just simply too many of them, and they don't have the money for it. So maybe it's an that that'll be the interesting part to see is a year down the line how much uh, has uh, application to these programs risen, right? Because people think more money is available, and uh, who's going to track it all? Who's going to make make sense that or make sure it makes sense, and also make sure that uh, whatever these approaches that are put into place actually stay that way? Uh, because I believe you can reapply every year. Um, for up to five years in a row for the same thing to continue on that path, right? And then after that, you're sort of self-sustaining. So uh, it'll be interesting. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Gentlemen, we have gone way too long. Let's check out this week's Joe Knows Turf. <laughs> Joe Knows Turf! Hi, I'm Joe. I'm gonna give uh-huh. you a bunch of accurate uh-huh. turf facts today because Joe knows turf. <laughs> All right, so Demay no, wait, no, has pulled. I, go ahead, pulled go an ahead, audible. I called an audible. Yeah, I called an audible. We're okay. not gonna watch that one. The one that you thought we were gonna watch. We're gonna watch a different one. Late breaking news here. Off of the Facebooks, and I've got to share this video with you and get your reaction to help these folks out. J Pink, go ahead and run that video. Oh boy. Oh. Well, there's no sound. And if you're wa- or listening, somebody filmed a window. Uh, their neighbor's back lawn is getting fertilized with a push sputter in. I wouldn't even say a real pattern. It's just being pushed around, and we're panning over to look and see what truck's out front, and it oh, is no. True Green. So now we're panning Great. back, the oh, guy who's pushing the spreader no. is doing some stuff, but also in the background is my uh, my dude's friend, his co-pilot, who is walking around with a four-gallon backpack sprayer. It looks like uh, spraying post-emergent herbicide because he's just spot spraying. And oh, yeah. No. Yeah, so let's talk about this because, listen, Matt, you you worked for this company. You worked uh, in high-volume lawn care. Is this a situation, and what are the, the, what are the uh, parameters of the, the regulations you're given as far as, hey, the weather's bad, but you got a goal to meet. What do you do? What's the mindset, and what's the training tell you to do first? Let's start there. Um, okay, so let me let me tell you the the dichotomy that exists in uh, under under this umbrella is uh, first, you are reminded that the decisions that you make while you're out in the field r- lie directly on you because you are the certified applicator that's making the applications. Now, the caveat to that is that you also have a management that tells you that if you are not hitting the numbers, then you are not going to be able to get a day off. And, uh, and whether that means you're working 80 hours a week or 120 hours a week, it does not matter. You're either going to come in with your numbers or you're not going to get time off. You're just going to continue working until you die. Um, and it's not necessarily that aggressive. Uh, it's that aggressive minus the until you die part. Um, and I've been told that if you're not hurt, you're not working hard enough. I've been told all kinds of crazy shit. And here is an example that I look at these guys and I and I know exactly what's going through their head. Um, I was treating a uh, hundred and eighty eight thousand, maybe a two hundred thousand square foot property one time in uh, in Fayette County, Tennessee, and uh, and it was 
a horrific thunderstorm that that was just coming down. It was a Saturday and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon and I had like four other stops on my route and I was told I could not come in until I had completed these, uh, all these stops. Well, what's interesting about it is that not only were we forecasted for that, um, I, I don't know. Does anybody remember when Nashville flooded? Uh, when uh, we got so much rain, dollar, uh, what, uh, whatever it is in Nashville, it all flooded. Everything, everything Hollywood was, was underwater. Hollywood was underwater. Hollywood was uh-huh. underwater. I remember that. Well, uh, yeah. what's interesting is that when that storm was passing through Memphis, I was on this 200,000 square foot property pushing a, uh, a push spreader on it and lightning struck maybe a hundred feet away from where I was. And it, uh, it was, it was such a frightening experience that, uh, I, I, I loaded up my truck and I drove back to the office and I threw my shit down and I said, fucking fire me. <laughs> and then I went home and, uh, and I showed up, uh, on, uh, on Monday it was Opryland. Pretended it was Opryland. like it never it happened. Opryland. Yeah. Uh, I showed up on Monday, like it never, never happened. And then nobody actually did anything about it. Nobody, everybody acted like I never had that conversation with anyone and that I wasn't <laughs> screaming mad, uh, because I was, I was furious. And in fact, I'll never forget. I looked at my service manager at the time and I, and I pointed in his face and I was screaming how do you fucking sleep at night? How do you fucking sleep at night? And uh, and it was like it never happened. And and so, but the, here here's the thing: is that when you're until you get to that critical threshold, that breaking point, you don't know that you can get away with that, right? Uh, because when you <laughs> have have reached that point of having that conversation with your manager, you're you're done. You have checked out mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You're done with that job. You're not going to work there anymore. And you're expected to get off the, hey, we appreciate effort or we don't appreciate your effort. You're an asshole. You know, see ya. Uh, and so, I trust me, I was shocked when I showed up to work and, you know, everybody's high-fiving each other like, damn, man, it was a crazy amount of rain. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? Uh, that's so, actually uh, the, that's the first chapter in Matt's autobiography. Unemployable, <laughs> you motherfucker. Okay, I have a similar one. I have a similar one in that I was treating somebody's lawn. I believe it was, uh, I think it was in 2010. And I literally saw a lightning bolt touch ground about a quarter mile to a half a mile away from me. Good sign to and, stop. Yeah, and the thing is, is that guess what? I guess what I had in my hand when I was doing doing that application. The trident. Of course, yeah. I I had the brass and stainless steel trident, and I said, "This application gun is going to become a lightning rod, and I'm going to become a five foot six crispy critter. I'm out of here." I am out of here and I'll come back when the weather stabilizes. And needless to say, the day after that initial lightning strike that I saw, that was the next morning. There was a hailstorm and a tornado that came through that part of the island. 
Yeah. <laughs> Look, all, all I'm okay. saying. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Is, is you know there are there there are going to be people that are listening to this right now that probably work for a company that has put them in this situation. You have to remember that when you sign the dotted line as a certified or a licensed applicator, that is your certification, that is your license, that is on the line. That's not the company. Yes. The company yes. has every out imaginable, and it does not matter what you say, whether you say you were abused in this situation, you were trained in this situation, it does not fucking matter. That comes down on you as an individual, that comes down on you as a person, that comes down on you as an applicator. You will suffer the consequences of making those decisions out there. You've got to either figure out how to get out of that situation or Grow the pair of balls required to say, no, 100%, I will not do this ever because it's my ass yeah. on the line. Absolutely, Matt, because do you know why in 2007 I became an in independent operator and not an employee, Matt? Do you know why? Because of shit like that. Yes, exactly. I mean, down to misuse of... And mishandling of product, the uh, application of products under questionable conditions. And I told the Zen manager that was the ringleader of all of this bullshit. I told him, hey, you know what? You do all this shit. Guess who the de Department of Ag asks about it? They don't ask you. They ask me. And my defense is not going to be. The manager told me to do it. And likewise, when I'm dealing with my individual customers now, I ask them, hey, are you going to bail me out when the Department of Ag comes after my ass? Fuck no. You're not going to. So when I say no, that's it. Because uh, the, ch the, the deal is, is that I also tell people, you know what? I will do any illegal thing you want on your lawn, right? I'll do anything illegal that you want. However, when it comes down to it and when I'm no longer allowed to do this, you then have to make sure that I am set for life. Are you, are you guys ready to do that? And I have yet to find anybody that is willing to take me up on that offer when I put it to them like that. So there you go. You've got, uh, you've got, uh, Chapter one, fuck no, and raise on biography, which is uh, entitled Hawaiian Silver Fox. <laughs> Happy birthday to Ray, by the way, 50 years old. All I'm going to say on this video real quick is just, hey, you don't need to be spraying post-emergent rain. This, there's a lot of things going wrong in this video that, that could be improved upon. It could be used as an opportunity. We could sit here and trash these guys. I'm sure they're trying their best, and they're probably doing what they were told or what they think that they need to do right yes. out of what Demay, Demay froze up there. These guys are, are probably people off the street that have not worked there very long, and they're doing what they think they need to do to maintain their employment status. And, uh, and, uh, but you, you, you have to understand that that is a company culture thing that needs to be corrected systemically. Uh, and until then, it's going to be a, uh, it's, I, I don't know, that gives the industry as a whole a bad name. And it needs to be called out for what it is, and it's bullshit. Uh, yeah, gentlemen, <laughs> let's check out this week's Burns. 
Uh, number one here, uh, Harrisonburg Organic Fertilizer Business expands to partner with local and out-of-state farmers. Uh, seven years ago, David Bokuk uh, started Mountain Gate Organics at just a 3,700-square-foot facility as a way to promote the benefits of living soil to grow crops. Uh, the worm farm is producing 650 tons a year in just worm casting, which changes the biology of the soil and makes things alive instead of dead. Around 1.3 million earthworms are housed at Mount Gay, where they sent through a molting screening process to separate them from their worm castings, which are then mixed to create the fertilizer. We pack it full of organic grain, pure, uh, pure organic grain. I know they're getting outstanding, so it carries a plant from in by itself. Mo Cook said the company is to offer a customizable soil products that are designed specifically for crops requested uh, by farmers, Mountain Gate partners with both in and out of the state. Bye, bye, bye. We're here to help everybody because we make dead things into life. Let's check out the Mountain Gate Organics uh, uh, product here that we're uh, that we're talking about. Uh, the uh, the website in and of itself is uh, is a real piece of uh, beauty here. But specifically about it is that if we head over to their uh, to their to their little uh, shop page, let's let's take a look here. We have a twenty five pound of organic fertilizer here uh, that contains earthworm casting. So we have 021 percent nitrogen, 006 percent phosphate, and we have 009 percent potash. We have uh, a, a a little look. Wait, what, is it is that is that thirteen and a half percent calcium? I'm going to guess that's two. No, 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 no. It's point. No, 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 no. Go down. Yeah. Point oh two one. Yeah. 13. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Is that, is that 13 and a half? So that's, that's a lot of calcium that's coming out of this. Uh, a fraction of magnesium, a fraction of sulfur, a fraction of boron, a fraction of copper, a fraction of iron, a fraction of manganese, a fraction of sodium and a fraction of zinc. Uh, in effect, what you're getting here is a bag of dirt. And it, uh, and in fact, I would say that this is maybe, slightly more nutrient rich than the soil you have in your backyard. Uh, if you were to just dig it up and plant something in it, this is going to be slightly more rich than that. And if you want these type of calcium levels out of your soil, which uh, who in their right mind would, uh, go dig up a, uh, a, a pound of soil from Texas, uh, from the, the Houston or Dallas area, and go spread it on your yard, and you've got uh, effectively the same exact thing. Uh, now the difference is, is that they'll sell you this 25 pound bag of it for $20 for $20. You can get a thousand pounds, uh, for, uh, $690 or you get a metric ton for, uh, what, what would that be? Almost $1,400 for a metric ton of this. And if you look at some of the other things that they offer here, you know, you got some fish fertilizer that's uh, that's uh, nice and stinky and expensive. You got some azomite, which is not going to do anything for you as well. That's literally rock dust. Um, uh, we have some pelletized rock phosphate pellets, which is uh, how, how plant available would you say that uh, pelletized uh, uh, rock phosphate is, Ray? You're going you're gonna <laughs> to get some, Relatively some good action out of that? Yeah, relatively yeah. unavailable because... Uh, does everybody understand what you need to do to rock phosphate in order to make it plant available? Yeah, a little a little sulfuric acid there is uh, what's going to be required. Uh, a little bit and, of sulfuric, so, yeah. <laughs> so the the our point our point here is that uh, this is great. Glad they're expanding a company that's only producing six hundred and fifty tons a year is going to have to sell it at prices that do not fucking make sense because there's nothing about that that takes into account economy of scale. Uh, we're talking about 
uh, a a decent sized lawn care company is is going to be consuming a hundred tons of fertilizer a year. There's definitely more than six decent sized lawn care companies out there. Uh, and by and by decent size, I'm saying like uh, just on the slightly larger size than average. And uh, and if I recall correctly, there's 122,000 uh, average lawn care companies that are out there right now. So, um, you know, again, this is not economy of scale. This is this is someone who's pretending like they're doing something different. They're not. Uh, it's, uh, it's, this is worm dirt and, uh, and good luck. If you think this is going to be anything different than what's already been done, there's lots of data out there about worm castings and, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the lack of performance characteristics you're going to get out of it compared to say, Oh, I don't know. N P and K. Now we're gonna have to watch dumb and dumber, uh, J pink on the movie night with Matt, because I, I wanted to drop a. I got worms, you know that that whole line. But Matt doesn't actually. About that. Matt need Matt needs to watch Billy Madison too, because that is apropos for all of the Joe knows turf subject. Because what is that? What is that line? Uh, I award you no points, and the entire room <laughs> is now dumber for having listened to that. <laughs> That's right. uh, what is it the, on the Lost Boys where he says, uh, "Eat the worms, Michael. Eat the worms." Oh yeah, wow. uh, yes, yes. going deep. Ha- yeah, oh uh, yeah. So I have a I have a brother uh, just a little bit older than you, Demay, and uh, so we watched the Lost Boys multiple times in my oh, house. Oh yeah, my brother, that, and that was why I got subjected to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, we've got fish that are dying. Uh, Overseas right now, and the Brandenburg Environment Ministry excessive pesticide values have been detected a measuring point in the odor. Uh, and so they're saying here is that laboratory determines increased pesticide values, and, and you got a shit ton of fish deaths. But where this one really grinds my gears is, is that, well, the cause of the fish kill in the Border River hasn't yet been clarified. And then if we go down to the last the last line here, the mass death of fish in the Border River odor uh, became known on the German side on August 9th. According to the Federal Ministry for Environment, hundreds of different substances in the fish are currently being investigated to investigate the causes. Scientists say a toxic species of algae could be a key factor in the fish kills, but that has not yet been proven. Other substances are, are currently being investigated. So they're going to come out in the headline here and say that, oh boy, we got pesticides and a shit ton of uh, 150 tons of dead fish, but it could be toxic algae. It could be one of the many different hundreds of substances that are being investigated. And uh, But pesticides sure is easy to point at and blame, right? Yeah, super this easy, is, and this is yeah, nuts. This, this pisses me no, off. This, no, this is crazy because under normal circumstances, did you know that fish have a rather high tolerance for two four D? Did you know that? Yeah, that's why it's an aquatic herbicide. Yeah, you can knock out things like water hyacinth with two four D and not hurt the fish. So. This is just an example of the news media playing along with the anti-pesticide agenda, where let's blame 2,4-dichlorophenoxyacetic acid. Let's blame that, where unless you make the fish swim in straight 2,4-D ester, I don't think 
a couple parts per million of 24D is going to hurt them seriously. Uh, I mean, <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. Uh, this is this is. I hope shit like this would be tackled by that USDA outreach program, but of course it's not because, as we see, it is uh, it is uh, disseminated into even European countries, and you know everybody's looking for the scapegoat, and it's always pesticides. Uh, here's uh, an interesting well, one: is uh, five synthetic fields used by the LA Unified Schools are out uh-huh. of commission. <laughs> uh, uh, the district has had a continuing problem with fields not being able to withstand the heat, causing material to end up stuck to the bottom of shoes. Oh, uh, in 2016, the district had to replace six fields because of defective materials. According to a statement from the LAUSD, crumb rubber infill material previously used is made of recycled materials, which could contain toxic chemicals. These infilled materials were removed from all district synthetic turf fields more than 12 years ago. The district moved to TPE, TPE and EPDM alternative infill compounds made of virgin rubber, which did not use any form of recycled materials. I thought if it was recycled, it's all good, but I guess not. I know that the recycled oh. ones will let's kill you. Uh, however, some of these products contain insufficient chemical stabilizers to withstand temperatures in the Los Angeles region and, and daily play field use. This resulted in shorted lifespans for some fields. However, all synthetic turf fields have to be replaced every eight to 10 years. Uh, boy, um, Demay, is this, am I, we, yeah, I mean, (laughs) okay, just making sure, just making sure. Yeah, no, you're, this is the kind of stuff that, um, it's, it's always been a moving target, right? So like, if you ask, uh, any of the major turf manufacturers, you know, Hey, what is your end goal? What are you trying to do? They will all. Uh, either uh, blatantly tell you or they will try to say it without saying it somewhere in between uh, is that trying to mimic a natural grass surface, right? And some of them put uh, an absolute shit ton of money uh, and research behind that effort. And, you know, they're always trying to improve it. So the, the, the rub of this is like to push this out and to really research it and do it um, in different climates, in different parts of the country, different construction methods, things like that, uh, you get situations like this where you know something that goes out that may have worked in one part of the country is not vetted out and in, in working somewhere else, right? Uh, so you know people see a turf field and think, well, it's just you know it's a turf field, no big deal. But uh, there's mm-hmm. a difference in terms of all the components that goes into it, and again, we're <laughs> If if that stuff is happening, right, the uh, relative safety of the fields that haven't failed yet should be looked at uh, with with close scrutiny because uh, they're uh, they didn't get like that overnight, right? The ones that have to be replaced right now, and so you're probably in a situation where several of these other fields, uh, in my estimation and experience, are probably in a uh, unsafe or borderline unsafe condition right now. So. Uh, Sounds like there's a little bit more work to do on the R&D set. Got to go back there and yeah, EPDM and some of the alternative infills can help, but they also, they have their own drawbacks for a variety of different reasons too, notwithstanding the fact of cost. They're, they're much more expensive than uh, just regular old recycled crumb rubber. So you put all that together and uh, you got a lot of money sitting out there in physical assets and now we can't use them. Uh, and even if there's a warranty replacement or whatever, it's still time, right? That's still saying, "Hey, kids, guess what? 
got to go down the street to the you know to your uh, rivals high school to play your home games this year because you know the fields get torn up and replaced. Good fucking luck. Yep. Speaking and, of yeah. of go go ahead, Ray. Go ahead. Okay, this is just something that I've I've seen as well, where a sports team was supposed to have used the stadium here. It was a soccer team, and what happened is there was an issue with the surface because guess what? Most sports surfaces here in Hawaii are almost all sin-turf. We don't have very many natural playing surfaces here in Hawaii, actually. We don't. Mm. And so this is like something that is not new to me. I've seen this before. I've heard this before. And I just have to ask now, so what are the downsides to having synthetic turf? This would be one of them, right? Breakdown of the surface necessitating an extremely costly removal and replacement. Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, lot, lot, lots yeah. of not look forward to there. Yeah. Um, and speaking of, of decisions that do not make sense, and I'm, I'm going to shit on those, uh, on those uh, fields real quick and then parlay that into what is going on in France right now, and that is climate activists fill golf holes with cement after water ban exemption. Uh, climate activists in southern France have filled golf course holes with cement to protest against the exemption of golf greens from water bans amid the country's severe drought. Targeted sites for this lose the leisure industry of the most privileged. The exemption of golf greens has sparked controversy as 100 French villages are short of drinking water. Golf officials say greens would die in three days without. A golf course without a green is like an ice rink without ice. He added that 15,000 people worked in the golf courses across the country. The recent action targeted courses in the towns of Ville-de-Luz and Blagnac. Uh, it was claimed by the local branch of the Extinction Rebellion Movement. In a petition, uh, in a petition, the activist said the exemption showed that economic madness takes precedence over ecological reason. While residents cannot water their gardens or wash their cars in the worst-hit municipalities, golf courses have escaped the nationwide restrictions. The water bans are decreed nationally, but enforcement is at the discretion of regional officials. So far, only one area, Isle-et-Vilaine in western France, has diverged, banning the watering of golf courses. Uh, some constraints on the golf course remain. Watering must be carried out at night with no more than 30% of the usual water volume. Some parts of the Loire River have virtually dried up across two-thirds of France. The state of crisis has been cleared with rainfall down uh, by some 85%. Um, hey, when in doubt, cement it out, as I was always taught. Uh, this, is, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a very, very uh, a positive type of environmental response in my opinion because this if, if there is one thing that is going to make me change my mind it is someone filling my aeration plugs with concrete on my golf green uh that is that is yep. definitely going to red pill the shit out of me i can guarantee that well uh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna be a little bit of a contrarian and point out to these environmental activists that now that you've created this kind of damage the golf green will require even more water to repair your act of vandalism. So what have they actually accomplished? Just saying. 
you know, this this idea that golf is the sport of the most privileged is just, man, it gets old. It really, mm-hmm. really gets old. And uh, and I don't <laughs> at this point, is there any is there is there is there anything that can be done about this or are we just locked into this narrative for the rest of time? Probably. How do you, how do you undo it? Probably. How do you undo it? You know, there's there's nothing you, you can do at this point to take that it's away. The, I, I think it's people that don't play the game that make that because the, the, yes. that that, uh, argument. And so uh, you think yeah, those know. environmental people are out there on the weekends stroking golf balls with their son in a fatherly son like fashion. Like, hey, boy, you really you really did good with your driver out there. Next week, let's work and on your pitching wedge. Hell no. no. And, it's, and it's not only the sons. It's also the the daughters. It is also the daughters sure. as well. Yeah, 100%. I mean, well, yeah. and, uh, and so, you know, how many of those so it, people... Go ahead. And because I know that not every single golfing person has a silver spoon stuck up their ass. Not, a, not every, no, not every I mean, golfer uh, that I know uh, has, has, has that. I mean, freak- a lot of them are just normal, everyday people. They don't even get to play at the most expensive country club. They're playing at the lower end clubs that are open to the public without a membership. I mean, so don't get me started. <laughs> don't get Matt, me started. You want to know how many courses I played where you could go out there with cutoff shorts, no shirt, and get fucking ass bag drunk by the time you were making the turn? You know how many fucks I played like that growing up? A lot. A lot. Mm-hmm. And that's... Uh, d- what I'm wearing now is uh, is what I use to build Target Golf, as a matter of fact. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> While drinking cases of natural light. Oh, no. <laughs> In those quantities. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Cases. Yeah. Um, Okay. It, I, again, this is this is this is crazy. I do understand that they're in the midst of a of a major drought there, and some things have to be done. But at the same time, to pretend like you know golf is this is a sport of only the the wealthy and elite is absolutely asinine. There are millions of people, hundreds of millions of people around the world that uh, that appreciate the sport that is golf, and uh, and you know I I hope whoever hurt these people. I, uh, I, you know, they, they, they get vengeance on them and they're able to square things away. Uh, gentlemen, let's check out this week's returns. Uh, so two major acquisitions and or spending plans this week on this week's returns. Uh, and the first one is, if anybody's ever heard of Xperia Green, uh, it looks like they are uh, they have been acquired by a private equity firm called Huron Capital, which is interesting because this is this whole private equity firm thing is uh, of what we uh, saw happen with uh, with True Green and uh, and maybe even Service Master as well. Uh, but I, I, th- I think that was more specific to uh, to True Green. And of course, you know, they got all this pretty flowery language in here. Xperia Greens, uh, several acquisitions from 2001 to, uh, 2021 to 22. Now has more than 40,000 customers and more than $20 million in total revenue. Um, Joe Cusick will be named co-chairman of the new venture. We'll share that role with David Alexander, the former CEO of True Green and current operating partner with Huron. David Alexander, I remember that name quite well, as a matter of fact. 
Um, and then it goes on to give uh, a little bit of a background on uh, each of the independent companies here. So um, the, the, what's interesting is this board they have put together here. Uh, it's run by lawn care industry veterans, John Moen, uh, President David Irwin, Chief Operating Officer Mike Goodrich, Chief Financial Officer and Board Member and Co-Chairman uh, Joe Cusick. Uh, Joe Cusick is the one who founded Real Green Systems. And if you do not know what Real Green is, you have your head under an absolute rock. Uh, Joe, I, uh, I'm not going to say what I was going to say because it's, you know, kind of interesting there, but, uh, um, um, uh, you know, so it's interesting that Joe said, you know what, we're going to real green and show exactly what we can do green, uh, by demonstrating it with, uh, with what we can do right here with, uh, with Xperia green, right. Just kind of putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak. And now they've got a $20 million dollar company that they're they're looking at. So good stuff there. And then my alma mater, and this is who I say really taught me how to do lawn care. I'd say True Green inspired me to want to be in lawn care. And Fairway Lawns taught me how to be uh, a lawn care technician. Uh, they have announced the acquisition of Planet Earth Lawn and Pest Control. Uh, and uh, a name that I absolutely hold near and dear to my heart, I, I see that when I read this, uh, that he is the CEO, Kyle DeMilt. And I mean this from the absolute bottom of my heart. If there was one, I would say there was two people at Fairway Lawns that really put uh, life uh, and lawn care into perspective for me. And number one was Stuart Castor. Number two was uh, Kyle DeMilt. And, uh, and those people I will always... Uh, and, and of course my service manager, Robert as well, too. I mean, those people, I would, I will always hold just near and absolute dear to my heart. And the guys who took over their roles, uh, uh, Corey and Brian, uh, it just, it just unbelievable salt of the earth people. And so I'm proud to see that they are expanding and, uh, and doing big things because they are, uh, they are, uh, amazing people to work with for, as, uh, for the years that I did work with them. I absolutely loved them. So, Big moves in the lawn care industry of, uh, you know, here, here's one of the things we, we talk about is, you know, on the, on the verge of economic issues, on the verge of recession issues. But what is continued to be evident time and time again is that the lawn care industry and the landscape industry can be relatively unscathed by this. And why that is, no one's exactly sure. You could say that, well, people want to protect their own house, their own domicile. Um, and, and, you know, they want their own little piece of paradise where they have stability that they come home to. I know that was one of the things I heard a lot, you know, during the, uh, 2008, 2009 financial crisis that, you know, people just wanted to come home to something that they could enjoy while they're out, you know, doing whatever they have to do to survive the rest of the time. Uh, and so, and I think seeing these types of acquisitions that are not small at all, um, are, uh, a, a testament to, um, you know, big private money, not worried about the economy right now, which is favorable in my opinion, at least in our industry. Anything else you want to add? Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's indicative of what's happening throughout the industry where you've got, you know, larger and larger companies that are rolling up smaller companies and trying to get bigger right through that growth. And we all know that if you have good systems in place, have good equipment and you've got the right staff, you know, uh, lawn care in particular can be a very high cash flowing uh, business. And so I think the goal is to package these all up and try to get them to a point where, you know, this company here at Huron can sell it to a larger PE firm, right? 
spin it off or maybe they just grow and sit on it and that's that's what they do so uh i i think you'll see this continue to heat up i've talked to several um lawn care operators of varying sizes here in the midwest in the last oh probably six months and um many of them being approached uh to buy right and and as part of a roll-up deal it's not just like hey we want to bolt you onto our existing you know framework and we're already operating these are companies that are coming in from the outside saying hey we want to take you from just like they did here you know take you from six cities out to you know a dozen or 25 or something like that that's that's how they want to fuel that growth so interesting stuff we'll see what happens hopefully there's some people that make out well financially out of all this in the industry no doubt uh because you you know listen guys you want to you want a quick roi on your business sell it uh and you know i know some guys that needed to get out of new york uh, over the last couple of years, they sold their business and uh, and made a lot of money and were able to relocate. And now they get to play the game of uh, holding uh, holding their hat to their chest for a little bit and then let things roll over. And then they're able to get going again, take the, 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 the systems and equipment and all the knowledge they have from doing it part one and rolling it into part number two and doing it all over again. So I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, Gentlemen, let's check out this week's mailbag. You've got mail. Okay. Uh, I'm going to answer one of these, and then the other one we are going to get to. I do want to at least address it this week. The first one is uh, we have Greg, who has reached out to us, and he says, I applied a new product to my yard and would like you guys to take a look at it, give me feedback, or maybe feature on the podcast. This product comes from a company called AgTurf. Their website is agturfusa.com. I just applied their product. Turf 48X application rate is two quarts per acre and one quart per acre follow-up in two weeks and also another one quart per acre in another two weeks. I live in Texas, west of Houston. And I'm going to say that uh, when I read this, uh, I feel like this is someone who is asking us to plug this on our uh, on our podcast. And I may be overstepping my, line, uh, my bounds there. Uh, so, Greg, if that was not your intent, I apologize. But... Um, so I go to look up this product here, and this is what, what we are told. We have 48X, which is an arsenal of micronutrients value. Arsenal of micronutrients value enhances fertilizer efficiency in all soils. And so when this is all I can find on the product, and I've gone through their social media, and their social media says that 48X contains microbials plus uh, a fertilizer. No, it says all natural microorganisms with an added arsenal of micronutrients, flushes salts from the root zone, enhances fertilizer efficiency in all soils, uh, but no label. And let me tell you right now, the fact that there is no label on this, there's a series of pictures. There's no data. There's no anecdotal data. Um, it's just a trust me. And there's not even, there's nothing on this that tells you what exactly is in it, at what ratios are in it, at what concentrations are in it to allow people to make an informed decision in and of themselves uh, with their own brain and their own mind. Instead, we're getting told, just trust us. Um, I call absolute fucking bullshit. Not a fucking chance would I ever use this product. Never would I ever recommend this product. Never would I feature this product on the podcast. And anyone who approached me about using this product and did use the product, I would say, well, good luck. You, you fucked up. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for being harsh and crass about that. Uh, but I, I will be that way because, uh, it's, it's such 
we are in a day and age where we no longer have to do this, right? This is this is such poor uh, execution. This is uh, poor product integrity um, that at least, at the very least, just show a label. Just show a label. And if you're worried about people copying you, then I, I don't know what to say. You've got an inferiority complex or you're afraid that people are going to look at it and realize that there's nothing in it that's going to provide any value. So um, again, your 48X product here, I'm going to call hot, absolute garbage, John. And uh, and I'll just leave it at that. Boys, what did y'all see about this that I'm overlooking that is going to make it the absolute magic sauce and make me put my foot in my mouth because I'm ready to at this point? Uh, I'm going to have to go with you. Uh, it is, uh, it's scary that, uh, you know, you have a product here that's being sold. I'm, I'm wondering how you even got it. Cause I'm not sure that there's, um, there's any way to, to buy this is what I'm, I'm trying to look up right now. And I don't see this anywhere. Well, um, I'm going to tell you what I did and I'm not going to dox this guy, but if you look at the, I figured I, his email I, address, I, I already was, I already was looking at it. I did the same thing. you did. Mm-hmm. And, and it's <laughs> like a, a not quite built marketing service, fulfillment service, because there's, it's an unfinished website I can see. And so, uh, yeah, I think this is their latest, greatest venture that they're undergoing is, uh, this revolutionary new product that contains, oh, what does it say on the website here? Because this, listen, this type of verbiage right here makes me want to run the other direction. Arsenal of micronutrients value. That sentence does not make sense no matter how you spin it. That's not a typo. That is just, it, that seems like someone who is not a native English speaker wrote that and is trying to convince me that this is something that it's not. And, uh, and I just, I do not trust it. End of story. Well, yeah. What, yeah. What, I mean, uh, that, that, uh, go ahead. Well, this is a mystery product that uh, are of dubious benefit and are, of course, very poorly vetted because I want to see, for example, on what basis or by what mechanism does this actually improve plant growth? I mean, give me an actual logical mechanism. And until I can see that, and until in my mind, it actually does that without having any kind of unintended effects a la organics, count me as a non-believer. <laughs> there, that's, that's my take on it. <laughs> count me as a non-believer. <laughs> well, yep. you know, I, I just, the only thing I wish, guys, I really do, I wish that uh, you know Ron Henry would come out from behind the uh, the Greg moniker, his pen name, and just ask us, you know, in person, what do you think he thinks about maybe selling that new product? Just ask us, Ron. It's okay. We're not here to bite. Um, our second one here is going to be from Andy, and Andy says, uh, "Hi, gentlemen. Enjoy your podcast. I'm just a new, uh, just a guy with a small four thousand square foot yard that likes lawn care." I'm trying to square away what I'm hearing from you all about agriculture and fertilizers with some others with a seemingly op- opposing view. Strong advocates for all organic farm- farming methods, examples, Gabe Brown and Joe Salatin. I have no real dog in this fight, but I hear the way you talk with such passion from both sides of the fence. My question is, is have you explored the methods preached by Gabe and Joel? And if so, what problems are you seeing? 
Uh, keeping in mind, they're not some university lab or newspaper journalists, but real farmers on active farms. Thanks for all you guys do. Andy, uh, Andy, I am not familiar with their methods, but if it is uh, organics that we're talking about, um, I would say that between the three of us, we have all played around in this space in some form or fashion uh, for definitely longer than a year uh, in an attempt to give it a real fair shot. Now, what I'm going to ask is that you give us a little bit of time to do some due diligence on who Gabe Brown and Joel Salatin are and uh, what methodologies they employ. However, from a top-down organic approach, we have talked about this several times on the show before uh, where we have taken some of the latest uh, 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 field work and field studies that have been conducted related to yields, yield quality uh, from organic crop production and shown that uh, it's not all it's all cracked out to be. Uh, it, it looks good on paper, but some of these things we're looking at with like, oh, I don't know, increased microbial activity uh, that they're quantifying as uh, a, a healthier soil in turn, is not translating into anything that is going to help us feed more people, is translating into anything that is going to improve the uh, improve the climate because what we're seeing from quote-unquote healthier soils are higher CO2 respiration rates. And so there's a lot of noise in this space that is not backed up by any sort of evidentiary uh, due diligence. And so we need to do some study on this before we can give you uh, precise an uh, answers. And you know what? We'll do that. We will gladly do that. And uh, so stay tuned, Andy. I'm going to leave your note up. And next week, gentlemen, I don't know, maybe we could even feature this for a Joe Knows Turf. I'm just kidding. Uh, we can we can do it for a, uh, I don't know, maybe a little extended mailbag here and, uh, and answer yeah. Andy's questions with some uh, legitimacy. It sounds like fun. Yes. It does sound like fun. Uh, with that, our episode is over. We are going to go hang out with the patrons. If you don't know who the patrons are, the patrons are the reason that we're able to do not just this, but all the other fun things that we do. Uh, and in fact, what we're doing this year is we're going to have our second annual meetup in Louisville, Kentucky, coming up in October. We are almost completely sold out. In fact, we may be sold out by now. I don't know. You'll have to uh, reach out at thegrassfactor.tv to figure out the ins and outs there. But uh, if you're interested in supporting the show and what we do and uh, and the knowledge that we share, you can join our private Discord. You can get more one-on-one -on -one access with us. You can hang out with us on our private Zoom calls and all the other fun stuff that we do at patreon.com forward slash burn and return because without you, we would not be able to do this. And uh, and of course, you know, it's like the media where you get to hang out with my own the guarantee. Now, we're going to to let them choose the title of this week's episode. Catch y'all on Thursday where we have Matt Gardwell of the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Gardwell. I said Matt Gardwell. Uh, Gardwell Lawn Care. Uh, Mr. Montgomery, who is uh, a near dear friend of mine, and I'm excited to talk about the growth he's seen in his business and the things that we can offer him to help him continue to succeed. Catch y'all on the flip side.